there's no telling what was actually on that piece of paper. Uh, <laughs> good for you, Lizola. <laughs> she got it right. Um, good job. Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 13 in your pew Bible. If you want to look there, it's page 1518, 1518 in your pew Bible. Uh, when I listen to voices in our culture, uh, maybe it's that it's an election year, but I don't really think that it's just because it's an election year. I hear a lot of pessimism about the world, a lot of pessimism about uh, this country in which we live, there's a lot of negativity, there's a lot of anger, there's a general feeling on both the left and the right that our nation is in decline, that we have fallen from a great place where we once were, that things are getting worse and worse, we're at the very point of despair and it's almost too far to turn back. And as we look at this passage in the Gospels, I want you to understand that the disciples of Jesus knew those feelings very, very strongly those feelings of expectation of what they thought was going to happen when the Messiah, when the Christ came to Israel to restore the kingdom, to make all things as they were meant to be, to bring the presence of the Lord back to the temple, to bring glory back to Zion, to restore Israel to what it was meant to be as, as queen among the nations, a light to the Gentiles, to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, to liberate Judea. They had such expectations. And then what they got was Jesus. And at this point, we are at the low point of Jesus' ministry. As we look at the words we're going to be looking at, you are seeing the disciples at a point where Jesus has relatively few followers. Many of those who had followed him have turned away and gone away. John the Baptist himself has had doubts about Jesus and whether he really is the one. John the Baptist has lost his head quite literally. He was decapitated. Uh, You're looking at a point where even the pastors of Israel are beginning to figure out how they're going to trap Jesus and ultimately kill Jesus. Uh, The kingdom, where is it? What's going on here, Jesus? You said you were coming as the king. You were going to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. We have all these expectations about what this is, and now it looks like even what little we expected from you has been lost and everything is in hopeless decline. Jesus, you even seem to be talking as if you're expecting to die fairly soon. There's a lot unfinished, Jesus. What's going on? Jesus tells them a series of parables. We looked at one uh, last week in which how he talked about his kingdom is, is like a seed that goes into different kinds of soil, and different kinds of soil receive it in different ways. And yet we're going to look at three more parables or little stories that Jesus tells to explain what's going on, because his kingdom is different than they were thinking. It's different than they were expecting. Let's look now at Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And so the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where, Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go pull up the weeds? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, 
you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things in hidden since since the creation of the world. Verse 36. Then he left the crowd and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In the midst of disappointment, a sense of decline and failure, Jesus, an unsuccessful evangelist, So few following him. Things obviously not going well. Jesus tells three stories. Three pictures. The first, which he then explains at the end, is the parable of the weeds, the the wheat and the tares. The tares are weeds. Um, What Jesus is saying here is that this present era right now is an era of non-judgment. See, they expected him to come in all of his kingdom and bring immediate judgment and retribution in the end of the age. And he's saying, no, there is a season before that. That is all going to happen, Jesus is saying. I mean, he's talking about, you know, being burned in a furnace. He's talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 42. He's serious about this, that, that there is a day when judgment will fall. And if you are on the wrong side of that judgment, it will be terrible, terrible loss, eternal loss for you. And yet Jesus is saying, do not misunderstand. I am the king, you are not. And this is not an era of judgment. This is an era of patience. This is an era of non-judgment. They're saying, oh Lord, look at all the, the evil mixed in with all the good. Should we go then rip out all of the evil people? Should we not just get rid of all of the wicked? Should we not? We've got this field. There's all this weed in here. And then there are all these weeds. Should we rip up the weeds, Lord? Is that what Christians are to do? Is that our purpose, to go on a moral crusade, to take back America and the whole world for God and to rip out and uproot everything that is opposed to God? And Jesus Christ says, God forbid it. This is an era of non-judgment. 
Because if you take upon yourself the judgment that is rightly only to me, the king, then you, in ripping up tares, in ripping out weeds, you are also going to rip out at least one precious little wheat plant. And I am not willing to lose even one. Don't you dare go on a crusade of judgment during this era, this era of non-judgment. The judgment will fall. It will be amazing. It will be terrifying. It will be complete. But until then, Jesus says, don't rip out one weed lest you mistakenly rip out one that I'm going to turn into a glorious flower, a beautiful piece of wheat. You see, he's the gardener. He says in in Matthew 18 that the Father is not willing that any of his little ones should perish. He says in John 6, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus is the gardener. He gives them life. He is the one who came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. Conversion is his work. You don't know a wheat from a tear. You don't know a healthy plant from something that's not healthy, but he does. He knows what he's going to do in them. You know, you think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, it's by grace that you have been saved. Not because you were good, because he was good to you. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this faith was not from yourselves. Even the faith by which you laid hold of Jesus was a gift of God, so that no one can boast not even about their faith. Because it's all his grace. You think of Lydia in the book of Acts, a dealer, a businesswoman, dealt in purple cloth, the most noble of cloths, wealthy, independent businesswoman. She comes to hear the gospel, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to believe the good news. And she and her whole household were baptized because it's the Lord who can take even the, the, the worst crabgrass and turn it into the most beautiful flower. That's his power. Don't rip out the crabgrass trying to save all your fescue. That's his job. And some of that crabgrass is going to become glorious because the Lord has that power. Jesus says in this first parable of the wheat and the weeds, this era is an era of non judgment. My purpose for you is not to become Westboro Baptist Church, picketing at military funerals with signs saying that God hates whole classes of human beings. I think back to when I was a college student at the University of Virginia, there was a guy who would come every year with a big wooden cross. You remember the wood? Michelle Kenyon was there. She can vouch for the guy with the big wooden cross. He'd, his, his wife, would, one of his wives, I don't know how many he had, would be behind him with a big cardboard sign saying, my, my, my husband is my ruler. And he would sit there and yell at everybody as they walked by UVA's Central Amphitheater and tell them that they're going to hell. And Christians on campus, obviously put in a very awkward position because everybody thinks he's one of us, would go and try to reason with him and say, hey, you know, what, we, we're not sure that you're really communicating the, the, the mercy of Jesus right here. And he'd tell them that they're going to hell too. The university kids were going to hell. The crew kids were going to hell. The Baptist student union, they were all going to hell. Catholics, everybody was, everybody was going to hell. And, uh, except him. Jesus says this is an era of non-judgment. Don't you dare rip up a weed that might become beautiful grain. That's not your calling. Era of non-judgment. You love. Trust me.
another parable. First one, non-judgment. Second parable, actually we're going to skip to the third parable, uh, in which he talks about the yeast and the dough. Um, you know, we think of yeast, you think of like a little Fleischmann's packet, you turn it off, you put it in tepid water for 20 seconds or five minutes or whatever, and it kind of foams and it froths, otherwise it's dead, and you throw it out, and then you dump it into some flour. No, that's not the way they did it. For them, yeast just meant some old bread that had already been leavened. And you take a little bit of that old, old dough that's already leavened, and you stick it in your new dough, and then you just sit there and you wait. And tomorrow, you, you watch it. You can sit there and watch it. It's doing nothing. God is doing nothing in the world today. Just watch it. It's so slow. It's painful. Nothing's happening. You're looking at the dough. It's got the yeast in it. Nothing's happened. But you go away and you come back the next day, and that flat loaf is... Oh! And you've got to punch it down so it can do it again. And you get really good pizza that way. Jewish pizza. First century Palestinian pizza. Uh, no pepperoni. It was kosher. Uh, you could have chicken. Um, and Jesus is saying, that's how my kingdom works in the world. I'm going to transform this world because the, the loaf is, the, the dough is the world. And the yeast is, is his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is going to transform this world. And it's going to be painfully slow. And you are not going to be able to see it happening if you look week to week, month to month, even year to year. But if you look century to century, if you go back for a thousand years and come back and look and say, what is the kingdom of Jesus done? You're going to see that it has leavened the whole loaf because that's what my kingdom does. Yeast changes the dough from the inside out, not by the dough's will, but by the presence and the power of the kingdom within the world. You say, wait a minute, Greg. Greg, you seem to be suggesting that Jesus is presenting some parable in which he's describing the advance of his kingdom in the world as actually transformative and improving the the world over millennia. Yes, I am. Yeah, you say we have a problem with that, Greg. Many of us in this room are Americans, and some of us Americans are Protestants. And Protestants Americans have been trained for 400 years to have a narrative of decline, that there was a golden age. Maybe it was sometime back when children played in the street without fear, when people didn't lock their doors, when uh, a bad kid in school was a gum chewer, when people didn't all sleep with each other except in marriage, when, when the world was right and good and father knew, knew best, and, and we've declined from that, and, and the good old days are over, and things are actually getting worse on the earth right now. That's what we're trained to think. It goes way back. You know, you, it goes back, I mean, even in the 1600s. Uh, you know, Puritans in the United States were, were it's called the American Jeremiah, this notion that, that the world, that it was better a generation or two back or maybe further. And, and already by the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s, you know, there's not that much long, just a generation or two, Puritans in New England were saying, gosh, we have fallen so far from that glorious age, that golden age, a generation or two back when things were right and good and God was at the center. Okay, so did Father really knows best. Let's take the 1950s. Was that our golden age of the glory of God shown upon the world? Well, uh, if you mean by that in the 1950s, people slept with fewer people that they shouldn't be sleeping with, then yes, there's definitely, I think, decline. You got me guilty we're there. Look around you. I mean, you don't have to look outside the church for that. It's right in here. But if you're a person of color, in the 1950s, we're not such a golden age. 
you had separate restrooms, you had separate schools, separate seats on the bus. Uh, the nice polished subway tile bathroom uh, was for whites only, and the colored bathroom was around back. It was a cinder block with a hole in the ground. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't so glorious. You know, I think of the 1950s, I think, I mean, I was born in Northern Virginia, and in Virginia in the 1950s, the, uh, you know, race laws were still in, in effect, sometimes called the sterilization laws. And if you were a 9- or 10-year-old boy in Virginia in the 1950s and you scored on your standardized tests uh, a low IQ in school, then a couple weeks later there was going to be a knock on your door and there would be police officers, you know, security agents outside your door and you would be taken and you would be tied up. You would be put in a straitjacket and you would be put in the back of a van and you'd be driven away from your mom and your dad and your family. You'd be taken to a public health center. You'd be unwillingly sterilized so that your low IQ gene pool can't infiltrate and toxify the human race. It was eugenics. Um, I mean, in the state of Virginia alone, there were 6,683 involuntary sterilizations just before 1957. Uh, and that was pretty typical of states in the Union. California had the most, almost 20,000. That wasn't a golden age. That was systemic evil at the structural level from the top down and the bottom up because people were hate-filled, unloving racists who were so, so concerned that, that their white power would be made perfect. They were Aryans. They were Nazis wanting to purify our Aryan blood by getting rid of bad DNA. Hundreds of thousands of people forcibly sterilized. It's barbaric. Father didn't know best. They were just as sinful then as we are now just as evil. It just came out in different ways. You know, you think of Pruitt-Igoe. You think of the, the injustice in St. Louis. You say, okay, Greg, it's not, the, it's not the 1950s. We've declined from something earlier. Think of the Victorian age when, when the home was valued and the churches were filled. Well, they were, they were big buildings. They weren't all that full historically. Um, and goodness knows some of the stuff happening in them. But I think of the Victorian age. I think of, I think of child labor. Uh, I think of my grandpa who in 1916 quit first grade at the age of six to work in the coal mines because they needed little tiny bodies that could squeeze into the crevices deep down underground and plant the explosives so that the grown-ups could blow up a new hole and get a new seam of coal. It wasn't glorious. It was just as evil. Think of Jim Crow. Think of meatpacking in, in Chicago, the corruption of Tammany Hall. You'd say, okay, go before that. Okay, let's talk about chattel slavery. Uh, let's talk about how every time I go to an ATM... It gives me $20 bills, and on the face of that $20 bill is the American president who exterminated a lot of my ancestors. I'm part Cherokee, and every time I go to an ATM, I have to look at the face of Andrew Jackson, and I remember the Trail of Tears. My people remember the Trail of Tears. It was genocide. That was not a glorious age. That was not the golden age when things were right. You want to go further back. Okay, further north, Greg, further back in time. Let's talk about burning witches. Let's talk about the Congregationalists expelling all of the Baptists out of, of Massachusetts because Baptists are evil. Let, let's talk about public shaming of adulterers. Or let's go back even further and talk about the Roman Empire built on systemic oppression, violence, and enslavement. You know, the, the, the point is we do have this race memory that things were better once, that things were right once. 
because we're human. And it's an echo of Eden going back to those first days in the presence of God when everything was right and there was no sin and sickness or tears or death, no betrayal, no violence, no hatred, no, no injustice. But you have to go back a whole lot longer than American history to get to that. Now, if you can get out of the American Jeremiah, this notion that things are continually getting better, and you can actually step back and take a big picture at the cultural impact of the gospel of Jesus over millennia, what can you see? Um, One sociologist I know of who talks about this with his students, he he talks about the the tribes of northern and western Europe uh, at the time, certainly at the time that Matthew was writing. Uh, and, and the change that happened, even though most people in Northern and Western Europe don't you know, necessarily talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, just the presence of the Christian church, the presence of the gospel, how it has changed things. And he says this, he says, you know, if, you, if you get a group of his students together, and he says, for example, if you see a little old lady walking down the street, and she's got a big purse that might be filled with money, should you go grab her purse, knock her down, and take all her money? And her students almost universally say, no, you shouldn't do that. Okay, so professor then asks the key question, why not? And the answer, well, uh, think about what that would do to her. That would hurt her. Think of the people that might be dependent upon her, the people she might be caring for. Put yourself in her shoes. Uh, he says, what's interesting is if you go to much of the rest of the world, sort of where there are traditional societies, traditional societies that are exactly like northern and western European societies 2,000 years ago. And you ask people in a traditional society today, you see a little old lady walking down the path or whatever. You, should you take her purse and all of her money? And universally, they say, absolutely not. Why not? Well, that would be a shameful thing. It would be humiliating to take from somebody so weak. Only a weak person would take some from somebody who's, who's weak. It would dishonor my family and make us look like we are a weak family to pry on the weak. Now, what, what is that answer all about? The answer is all about honor and shame. I wouldn't steal from her for my sake because I do not want to feel the shame of being the kind of person who would do that. Now, that's exactly where those tribes in northern and western Europe were. But 2,000 years of just Christians being around, even just a handful, being present there and what has changed is that honor-shame ethic has been replaced by one that is all about loving your neighbor and putting yourself in their shoes and feeling empathy toward them. These are not people who necessarily are professing faith in Christ. It's just the power of the gospel to change an entire civilization to make it all about tolerance and patience and non-judgment and individual dignity and the sanctity of every human life and the value of peace over war. And have we been very good at that? Goodness, no. It's still a world that is filled with sin. But it's the power of the gospel. Jesus is saying, you can't see it happen. You can't really measure it. But my gospel, my kingdom goes into the dough and eventually it will leaven the entire lump. It's the power of the gospel. He gives a third answer. First answer, first parable. All about this being an era of non-judgment. Don't start pulling up tares because you're going to pull up wheat too. Second thing, final one, he talks about the yeast and the dough. And he says that the way my kingdom works is it transforms this world invisibly and very slowly, but it does have an effect. Now, the middle parable, this third one we're going to look at, 
he talks about the mustard seed, a tiny little seed. These were probably white mustard seeds, not our black mustard seeds, uh, just based on the fact that they were in the Levant in the first century. And uh, tiny little seeds, he put it in, and he talks about how it grows into a great tree. And of course, that is itself the exaggeration that people would have been surprised by. Oftentimes, there's a little detail that's a little out because a mustard seed, you put it in the ground, and it will grow to about 24 inches. He's saying this mustard seed is actually going to grow into a big old redwood tree, so big that birds can actually come and rest on its branches. What's he saying? He's saying my church is going to continue to grow, and it's going to grow unchecked throughout history. Um, This is what the prophet Isaiah spoke of, the Messianic era would do. He said in Isaiah 2, what what Liesl read, uh, or, uh, or actually we read it earlier, it was in a call to worship, I believe, early in the service, where he said that in these last days, in this messianic era, what would happen is the word of God would go out from Jer- Jerusalem and all the peoples of the earth would come and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish God. Uh, it's an impossible prophecy in the first century when not many people are Jewish. They tend to be in the eastern Mediterranean and, and Jesus is actually, and most of those people don't really follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying to his handful of followers, you know, eventually this thing, it's going to spread. It's going to get out of control. And, you know, I'm going to die soon. And, and you're going to take over, like, 11 of you. And, uh, and this is just going to transform the whole world. And everybody's going to come to Jesus. And I'm like, really? Really, Jesus? I mean, we've got 2,000 years of perspective, so we can actually see, you know, a tenth of the world worshiping Jesus. We can actually see people in North America and South America that they didn't know existed worshiping Jesus. We can see people in Southeast Asia worshiping Jesus. They did not have that perspective. It would have seemed absolutely farcical, impossible, even though it's what, what Daniel had talked about when he talked about the Son of Man who would approach the Ancient of Days and was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all the nations and peoples of every language bowed down and worshipped the Son of Man. It had been prophesied. Isaiah 42, how uh, the Messiah would, would not falter or be discouraged until he established justice on the earth in his teaching the islands. That's the Greeks, the, the Cypriots, the, the people out of the Mediterranean, people who don't even know about the Jewish God. They're going to hope in the God of Israel and Israel's Messiah. Isaiah 9, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It was the hope of Israel, even in their psalms, even in their songs and their hymnals, crying out to the nations, clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy, shout to the Lord, all the earth, worship the Lord with gladness. This was always a part of Israel's destiny, that all the nations would be blessed through it. And it's what Jesus said in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You're going to kick in hell's gates and you're going to set captives free because Jesus is saying, that's what my gospel does. It is like a tiny mustard seed and it's going to grow and keep growing and it's going to get huge. My church is going to continue to grow unchecked. Yes, it doesn't look like much right now, he's saying, but it's going to get massive. Birds of the air are going to come and land in it. And it's the story of of Israel. You see it in it's the story of the church. You see it in Acts chapter 1 where, where, you know, Luke talks about how, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, he had talked about what Jesus began to say and to do. But in Acts, he's telling the church history, which is about what Jesus continued to say and continued to do because he's still speaking. He's still acting. He's still alive and at large on planet Earth today. You know, I could talk about 
St. Thomas, who ended up in India, probably involuntarily. Uh, and historical sources talk about how him encountering a, a king in southern, Indo- in southern India named Gundaferis, who we now know historically actually did exist. It's actually true. Gundaferis became a Christian. And then there's an assassination by Hindu Brahmin. But today in southern India, there are still Christians, the Thomas Christians, who, who trace their ancestry back to St. Thomas, the, the one who had all the doubts. could talk about Odysseus and Frumentius. Uh, in the early 300s, they were young men from the city of Tyre in what today is Lebanon. They were Christians. And they're, they're, they were sailors. Their ship was wrecked in the south coast or west coast of the Red Sea. They were captured by locals and taken to the Ethiopian capital of Aksum, where they preached the gospel. And the gospel took root. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church is one of the oldest churches on the history of the planet. It dates back to the early 4th century. Athanasius himself consecrated Odysseus and Frumentius as the first two bishops of Ethiopia. I think of Ulphias, who brought the gospel to the Goths. Ulphias lived on the, the... north coast of, of Turkey on the Black Sea and in the year 341 his home city was invaded by the Goths who lived on the other side of the Red Sea what today is Crimea and Ukraine and the Goths came and they sacked his city and they took Ophias, young Christian man, they took him captive back to their own land and there he began to preach the gospel of Jesus. He began talking about what God had done in his life, what he had seen God do in people's lives. It began to take root. People began to believe. Ultimately, Ophias, they didn't have a written language, so he had to create the Gothic language. He had to create an alphabet in order for them to actually be able to read the Bible. And he translated the Bible, all the books of the Bible, into the Gothic language that he had created. Every, every, well, everything except First and Second Kings. He thought they were too violent already, and they didn't need First and Second Kings. Uh, I could talk about St. Patrick preaching the gospel in Ireland. You know, age 16, he was captured by, by uh, Irish raiders in the year 389. And uh, he ultimately escaped back to England and then returned willingly to Ireland to preach the gospel to his former captors. And, and over the next several centuries, the early Middle Ages, the church that, that he founded... In Ireland, that Celtic Catholic Church independent from Rome was the most active missionary presence on, on the planet. All of those tribes in northern, uh, northern Europe who heard the gospel for the first time by Celtic Christian missionaries sent out from Lindisfarne and Iona, these mission centers. I could talk about slaves who were Christians who were enslaved by the Vikings, and ultimately it was the Vikings who ended up following Jesus talk more recently about R.J. Thomas in the 19th century. He was a Welsh missionary. Uh, He had a burden for the xenophobic hermit kingdom of Korea uh, in which no Westerner could set foot. And uh, in 1865, he was in China and he had uh, the opportunity of a lifetime because an American ship, the SS General Sherman, was going to steam up the Taedong River to the capital of Pyongyang in the hopes of luring the Koreans into a trade deal. And Thomas got a seat on that vessel, and he took with him a big old box full of Bibles in Chinese in the hopes of being able to reach some scholars there and talk to them in Chinese about Jesus. And when they reached Pyongyang, they weren't particularly welcome. Um, The ship got stuck on a sandbar, and the ship was set afire, and as the crew waited on the store, 
the shore. They, they, nev- they never made it to shore alive. Thomas did make it alive on the shore, but before he could speak a word, he was clubbed and he was, he was gone. Encouraging. Nice story, Greg. You should end right there. Um, except what happened is uh, one of the men who clubbed him noticed this big box of books, and paper was very valuable. Paper was something that they would paper the outside of their houses with, and so he took this big box of, of books in some language he couldn't read, and, and he began cutting out all of the pages and papering the outside of his house with all of these sheets of the Bible. And not long afterwards, when the country did begin to open up to outside presence, you could go there and you would see all of these scholars circling around this man's house, reading about Jesus in Chinese mandarin and today uh, there are more presbyterians in korea than there are in north america Uh, cia world Factbook estimates that one in three south koreans is now a christian it's the power of the gospel jesus says it's going to keep growing it's going to keep expanding that's my purpose in history jesus says to those of us who are tempted by the doom and gloom of those who want to paint a picture of eternal decline who tell you there is no hope, there is no future. The best thing that Christians can do today is to hunker in the cellars of their churches and hope they escape the coming flames. Jesus paints a vision that is radically different, a vision of an expanding kingdom, a kingdom that grows, a Jesus who who by his death purchased people for God from every tongue and tribe and people and language, who is actually going to gather in peace without violence, a kingdom of people more diverse than the world has ever seen. Jesus says, my seed is going to grow. I am alive and at large and calling out my people from every nation. This year at Urbana, uh, an Iranian woman named Sarah shared her testimony. She's 33 years old, uh, lives in Iran. She talked about how 10 years ago at the age of 23, she was a Christian in Iran in the Islamic Republic. And she started a ministry because she heard a voice of God telling her that she was going to start seven Christian churches. And she didn't know how to do that, but she just started reading the Bible and talking about Jesus with everybody she came across. And in five years, Uh, Really, between 2005 and 2010, she started six new churches in uh, in Iran, churches in which people from Muslim backgrounds were becoming Christians, and people were learning to walk with God, and they were studying the Bible together. These are churches that are highly illegal and have to meet uh, underground because in the Islamic Republic of Iran, the penalty for a Muslim converting to Christ, it's the crime of apostasy, is you can get the death penalty, and so it's very, very risky. Um, But five years ago, though, at the age of 28, after planting six churches, a knock came at her door. It was the day after Christmas, and there were five security officers outside her home. And they took both her and her sister prisoner. Uh, She was blindfolded. Sarah was handcuffed. She was put in solitary confinement in a cell six feet by six feet. And she stayed there for 37 days with almost no human interaction. One night, as she sat on the floor of that six-by-six cell in the worst prison, the notorious prison in Tehran, she cried out to God and thought, God, why have you called me here? Why have you put me in this? You said you would take care of me. I thought you would take care of my family. You had so much that you wanted me to do. Jesus Christ, where are you? What is going on? Where are you? Do you even care about me? And at that point, She heard a voice. 
she says. And it was the voice of God speaking to her. Sarah, you preach to other people and tell them that I am alive, but you are acting as if I am dead. And this Iranian woman talks about the conviction and the shame that she felt as she realized that the word of the Lord was true. That she had been assuming that Jesus was not alive even as she was proclaiming him to everybody else. And she asked the Lord, forgive me, Jesus, forgive me. I know who you are, Lord. All authority is yours, Jesus. You alone have authority. I know who you are, Lord. You are not dead. You are alive. And after 37 days, she was released from prison. And when she got back to her Christian community, they all encouraged her to leave the country. They're on to you. The security's on to you. They're going to be following you everywhere. They're going to know what you're doing. They're going to be watching you. It is not safe here for you. You have to leave Iran. This young woman, sensing the authority of Jesus and wanting to respond to the authority of Jesus, who will grow his mustard seed into a great tree, said no, because I felt him calling me to plant seven churches. And I have planted six And there is one more that must still be done. And so she went back. She went to a a city that is very risky for, for Iranian Christians, a city where there are no Christians, very few. And she went there and she has started another church, a seventh church. And it is thriving. It is growing. People are coming to Christ. People are, are experiencing release from shame and guilt and bondage. And they're seeing the power of God in their lives. Jesus said, my kingdom is like a little seed that becomes a massive tree. Just wait and watch and surrender to it because it is huge. We don't know where we are in the continuum of the history of the church. We don't know if you know, at the end of the age, if that's going to come really soon and we're chapter 12 of the big book of church history, or if at the end of the age we will look back and Memorial Presbyterian Church will be halfway through chapter 1, the early church. But what we know is that the Lord is alive, that he is working, that he is growing his kingdom. Got a video that I'm, we're going to see if it works. This week was the one-year anniversary of the killing of uh, a number of Coptic Christians by the Islamic State on a beach in Libya. Uh, We're not going to watch that video, but if you would go and watch that video, you would find that these Christian men, as they are preparing to die, they are crying out, Isa, Isa, which is Arabic for Jesus. They're crying out to Jesus as they die. And the response of the Christians in Egypt, their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, was one of forgiveness. And that caught the eye of a whole lot of people in the Muslim world because it was so opposite what they would expect when your loved one is taken from you. A number of people put together a video response from the people of the cross to the Islamic State fighters. Uh, it's just a couple minutes long, but it's a response that a number of Arab-speaking Christians had a part in, and uh, we're going to actually watch it because it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the kingdom. So uh, let's go ahead and cue this video if you can. <laughs> 